You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 285. Friday the 13th is still better than Monday the whatever. Anonymous. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters David Goyer, from who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouras, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Well, guys, today I got for you guys a legend in the horror space we have on the show writer director and co-creator of friday the 13th sean cunningham and sean and i had an amazing conversation about how he came up with friday the 13th why they they came up with the movie the whole story about how it was got released widely theatrically back in the in the 80s his impact on horror movies and the slasher genre in general, and so much more. We also discussed many of his other films that he did throughout the 80s and 90s that were classics as well. So without any further ado, please enjoy this scary episode of the Indie Film Also Podcast with my guest, Sean Cunningham. I'd like to welcome to the show, Sean Cunningham. How you doing, Sean? <laughs> I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've, I, you know, I've not only been a fan of uh, of that little movie you did back in the '80s uh, with a the guy, the, the person with the, the hacking and the stuff. Yeah, uh, I, I'm a fan of that and what you did there. But I mean, I when I was in a video store, I worked in a video store from pretty much '88 to '93. Many oh, of your my. movies. <laughs> we're on my shelves from Deep Star Six and and uh, I did so many movies, Spring Break, uh, and and many other ones that you that you directed and produced, which you've done a couple of. You've done a few things in the business, my friend. You've done a couple. I've, of things. Sur- I've survived since the eighties. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So my very first question to you is, how yeah. did you get in 
this business? How did you start? Because you started back in the, if I'm not mistaken, the early seventies uh, producing. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, I got I, well. It's weird. I was working on Broadway as a stage manager and thought, well, maybe I could produce something off Broadway. That would be a that would be better than just stage managing all the time. And I looked at that and I said, John, there's no way I would invest a nickel in an off Broadway show. <laughs> and uh, I let alone, you know, recommend it to my friends and family. So I was looking around to do something. And then <clears throat> I guess the long story short was that I said, well, if I were going to do a play, you get some actors, you get a script, get some costumes, you rehearse. Then when you finish, then it's done and you show it to people. So making a movie can't be much different than that. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Just yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, and and so so that's how that's really how how it started. I uh, uh, <clears throat> made a uh, I made a sort of a hmm, was it, uh, the name used to be White Coater. You know, okay. a guy, an actor would come out in a white coat and mm -hmm. say, in the better interest, in the interest of better marriages and interpersonal relationships. I'm going to show everybody how to fuck better. And okay. Fair <laughs> enough. This was, but we didn't. This was before, uh, before there were any any overt pornography. But it was a mm -hmm. it was a strange way to get started. But it spoke to the fact that <clears throat> I think one of my biggest assets is I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. So therefore, I didn't have these red lights saying. Oh, you can't do that, or that's crazy, or you know, what are you doing? And I would just, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, just kept staggering forward. And um, what happened with this this little movie is that, oh, I need to get in a movie theater, so I got out the Yellow Pages, which they had then, and went over to movie theaters. And near the top of the listings was Brandt Theaters. Now, Bingo Brandt was in his day a legend. His family uh, owned a whole bunch of property in New York, and they owned theaters on 42nd Street. And he was very kind, and he said, he looked at your movie, I'll play your movie, kid. And I said, great, how does that work? And he explained it to me, and, and uh, you know, a certain amount of money comes into the box office, and then after that, we split a 50-50. I said, okay, if that's how it works, fine. And... Um, he ran the damn movie. I think it ran for something like 27 weeks or something oh. on the corner of 42nd Street and Broadway. And so, the, make no mistake, the movie was terrible. I mean, you know, it, I mean, and um, even looking at it kindly, it was terrible. Um, but I had something that other people didn't have is I was a producer of a hit movie. You know, it had played, you know, I, it got made for a dollar and a half and it played in Times Square and it made a bunch of money compared to what it cost. And mm -hmm. so that was that was basically um, the beginning for me. And, I, and then, know, Go ahead. No, I was just that I, you know, I, I had a, a background in theater and then doing Broadway shows and Shakespeare and stuff like that. But um what drove me when I first went in the film business and continued to drive me for a long time was not to not to fulfill, you know, some 
great creative vision. You know, I just wanted to make something um, and sell it for more than it costs to make it. Because I had a family uh, and kids and, you know, all kinds of things. And so I had to, I, I was in the movie business to make a living. Now, that's not to say I didn't enjoy a whole bunch of different things and and uh, different kinds of movies and try to, you know, try to figure it out. But at the end of the day, I think that that was, um, that was one of my guiding principles is, you know, how can you, who's going to buy this? And, and and why? And, and you know what? I'll, I'll tell you, it's, that's so refreshing because most filmmakers that go into the business go into it as an artist and not as a business person. And if you can find that combination of a businessman and an artist uh, or a business person and an artist, to, that's when you get real success. And it, it was really interesting that you came out as a producer first, correct? Mm -hmm. before yeah. you Before you started directing. And then you produced another little film uh, with a young up-and-coming Horror director West something or other. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the last house on the left in 1972. You, you produced. Right. Was that his first film as a director? Yes, uh, yes, it was. Um, Wes and I met at 56 West 45th Street, and he was working as a cab driver, and he was also syncing up documentary, um, 16 millimeter film down the hall, and um, and we needed. Uh, someone to help in the editing room and we became friends and and um there came a time when when uh some of these guys that i knew wanted to make a feature film for their drive-in theaters and so um they asked if we wanted to do it and i said yeah we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show I think so. Let's, you know, <laughs> I never made them. This is a movie movie. And, uh, and, and uh, Wes said, uh, yeah, I'll write it. Cause he liked to write was one of his, one of his things. And, uh, and so we got this, the script, which is kind of roughly inspired by um, Virgin Spring. And, right. And, you know, and it had some, you know, this dreadful, uh, you know, horrible twists in it. And um, <clears throat> we just, you know, it was like man, being kids sneaking out at night and drawing graffiti on the, on the walls. And, you, <laughs> and nobody catches you. You go home and do it again. Um, but um, th that was, <clears throat> and the picture was turned into, you know, sort of a cult film, but at this time, um, it was so disturbing to people who saw it. Um, <laughs> they wanted to close the film down or, or uh, you know, lynch the people who made it. And, <laughs> and, and uh, it's true. And it no, was, I know. It's 1972. Uh, I mean, it's 72 not... was when it was released. We made it in 71, 70, 71. And, right. Um, and it was like, how do you, it really becomes, how do you do this? You know, I remember, uh, um, <laughs> it, was, it was, yeah, it was shortly after, after Last House, um, I went to uh, California to, to see people in the movies for the first time. 
Um, and there was a company called uh, American International Pictures. And uh, I met this guy called Sam Arkoff, and he um, got me onto a few sets. And I came home with these stories, and it included saying, Wes, let me tell you about this. There's a job called script supervisor. <laughs> yeah. As far as we were concerned, you know, that was somebody that just took a roll of tape, held it up to the camera, and gave, you know, a clap to sync it up. Or if you had a cigarette, to know how long it was on a certain mm -hmm. line. But, um, but not only was it a great idea, I just didn't know that there was somebody that really did that job professionally and how important that job turned out to be. But that's the kind of <clears throat> that's the kind of ignorance I was dealing with. Well, and then also, I mean, back in the 70s, look, in the 80s, when I was coming up in the early 90s, there was barely any information about the filmmaking process in the public eye. I mean, you had to go to a film school. And even in the 70s, I mean, film schools were just starting to get off the ground with Coppola and, and those guys and Scorsese and and them coming up, but there was there just wasn't a lot of information. Now everybody knows what a script supervisor. Everybody knows what like you know every you can make a movie with your iPhone. So it's so much more information out there about the process. I can yeah. really imagine you guys were just basically bumping around in the dark, essentially. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and we survived. We we're lucky to get by, and then we went on to whatever the next whatever the next thing was going to be. So then there was a, a, a another movie that came out um, out of California about this guy with a mask on who was killing yeah. who was killing people, mm -hmm. and it was a huge hit. I remember it was yeah, called it Halloween. Did. It was it was called Halloween, and it was a big hit. And then was that the inspiration for you to start trying to figure out Friday the Thirteenth? Um, in some ways, it was. I saw Halloween. Oh gosh, I don't remember. Six months, maybe before Friday Thirteenth, um, before I decided to do Friday Thirteenth, maybe nine months, I don't know. But I thought that Carpenter made a terrific film. But what I really liked about it was that it was so small, and so um, so personal. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis going around the dark house and some steady cam stuff outside, and 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 it just really worked. And so it's you know it said. You don't have to have these giant crews and do all this big stuff. We could make a small movie so long as so long as there is a market for it, and maybe you know figure out how to make a uh, how to make you know a scary movie. You know, at 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 this point, um, Last House was in my rearview mirror way back, uh, <clears throat> and um, I didn't want to make some version of Last House again, but. And I had been, I made two children's films uh, in the late seventies, which a lot of them was on baseball, the others on soccer. And I thought that that was where my career was probably going. And um, the soccer movie, well, actually it was okay, but it got optioned by United Artists. And so they wanted to make it into a TV series. And that was great, but it was gonna take six to nine months or, you know, to roll around. So. Um, how am I going to raise money? What am I going to do to keep the machine going? And when I was working on the kids' soccer movie, um, one of the things you do is you come up with, try to come up with titles. 
You, this you know, movie opens and nobody comes. Better title, get a different title, and you make lists of titles. And while I was one day making lists of titles, um, I said Friday the Thirteenth. Huh. Man, if I had a movie called Friday the Thirteenth, I could sell that. You know, that was the that was the entire thought. And so that you know, cut to six months later, however, however long it was the end of no, it was around the fourth of July, and um, I said, let's try to make, let's try to make a scary movie. I want to call it Friday the Thirteenth, and it was a question of, well, can you get the rights? And who knows what the rights are? And I said, well, yeah, I think so. So I took out a full page ad in Variety, you know. Friday the 13th, crashing through mirrors and glass, the most terrifying film ever made. (laughs) And I figured if there was somebody that had the rights to that, you know, they're going to respond. And a few weeks passed, I never heard word one from a lawyer. And, um, and, but I did hear from distributors said, oh, I'd be, I'd be interested in that. And I'd be interested in that. So, we spent the rest of the summer trying to come up with a, a movie which was, okay, what's scary? What can you do that's like scary and and be kind of fun? And uh, Victor Miller, who I was working with at the time, you know, um, we said, well, what if it's sort of like you're a kid and you're in bed and you think that, uh-oh, there's somebody in the closet. And the kid's all like, oh, right? Well, well, let's make a catalog of those things, and and see if we can include them in this sort of um, structure. So, it was trying to find set pieces that seemed like seemed like uh, they would go together, and really just roughly. I mean, it's uh, um, it, you know, it was kind of ten little Indians. You got a bunch of people in the woods dying and being killed, and so you and the audience say, "Oh, who's doing that?" Well, not her. She's dead. Oh, he died too. So he gets smaller and smaller. And um, uh, it wasn't that it wasn't that uh, I had ideas of trying in some way to Im- imitate uh, John's film, uh, Halloween. It was just that we had a small budget. We didn't have any stars. We didn't have any distribution or production plans. But and figure let's just try to make this thing and see it see if it works and and then we'll come back to the children's film in the spring <laughs> so uh, but so it seems to me that that you you guys were basically creating the template for this kind of horror movie because i know john's had a high school that was a little bit bigger in scope than mm-hmm. friday the 13th you if i'm not mistaken was the first movie which is like Take a bunch of kids into the woods and kill them off one by one. I don't think there yeah, was. Yeah. That's a, That's basically a template for well, a film now. Like what? A, what? A, yeah. And <laughs> I, I would hasten to tell you, and anybody that happens to be listening, that I think that there were so many shortcomings in Friday the Thirteenth, um, and and the film was grossly successful, not because of those things that we did wrong. But in spite of them, so <laughs> so what happened was so what happened was that oh look at all the money they made all they did is take a bunch of kids in the woods chop them up and and there you are you have a movie I think he killed uh, ten people 
we'll kill 20. It'll be so much better. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And the thinking isn't far off of that. Uh, but I, you know, um, over time, forever and ever, uh, I keep thinking the most important part of anything that we do like this is the story and mm-hmm. the story that you're going to tell. And it's very, very hard um, to come up with a good story well told. But that's that's where the money is. And if you can figure out how to do it or how to get a story, then you're off to a good start. Um, and I think um, the people who write good screenplays get paid a ton of money. And the biggest reason is that so few people can do it, you know, mm-hmm. and it takes, you know, uh, it it takes so long to learn that craft. And it's not just getting a copy final draft and start typing. Mm-hmm. Say, you know, uh, it's it's different than that. Um, so I I think that uh, yeah, my advice is, you know, three most important things in a movie are story, story, and story. You know, without and, without without yeah. question. And you know, when you're out there making this, it's it, again, it sounds like you guys were just literally bumping around the night. No pun intended. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> while you're making Friday the 13th and you know, you've got a bunch of young kids. One of them happened to be a young Kevin Bacon, which is, mm-hmm. I always find fascinating. He'd done a, I think he'd done mm-hmm. animal house. He was an animal house prior to that. And mm-hmm. I'm sure he was just happy to get a job at that point. He yeah, wasn't I'm sure he wasn't, he wasn't footloose just yet. Not uh, yet. No, no. <laughs> he wasn't full great, you know, a great kill. If you will, if you're going to say kills right. uh, right. in that film, and uh, so you so you decide to go make this movie. You're starting to cast. Who gives you money for this kind of film that is not, other than Halloween, been a financial success yet? Because it came out pretty, pretty soon right after Halloween, within a year or two, right? Yes, yes. Within a couple of years. So Halloween's the only one that's done like broke the you know kind of opened the door open about it and said, hey, there's a market here. Who Who's crazy enough to give you the money to make this right now? Well, let me back up. Um, what, what happened was that that John's Halloween um, was a really good movie, but it was in the days of of, uh, of you used to go to a Cincinnati and you'd have ten prints in the back of your car, right? And you take out some new, new newspaper ads and put up. Um, posters in the lobby and see if people came. You might have radio ads. You know, you're trying to figure out how to do it. And if it works okay in Cincinnati and you get your 10 prints, or then hopefully 20 prints, uh, uh, you go on to the next market and now you've refined your um, refined your uh, uh, sales strategy and you go to another market. But you never opened why that not that was really never done. Um, the first picture to open really wide um, in, I think it was 800 theaters at once, was Jaws. Right. And, and when it came time to figure out um, what are we going to do with Friday the 13th, I'll back up and tell you that the money that came, uh, the money for Friday the 13th came primarily from 
um, owners of theaters and drive-ins. And um, we had <clears throat> um, we had worked on some other little things before, and I wasn't ever sure if I really wanted to get back into into bed with these guys. Um, but I said, "What the hell? We just we'll make a movie and just do it." And so they um, had relationships with Frank Mancuso at, at Paramount. And we took it to Paramount, and Paramount, the executives, for reasons I can't understand, they just loved it. And then what they wanted us to do is schedule a second screening and then bring all the secretaries that they could and, and kids that they could into the screening and wait for the ending and the popcorn would go flying and they'd laugh. And it was um, <laughs> so, it, and, and Mancuso at that point was head of distribution, I believe, at Paramount. And he decided he's going to take this little movie with the name Friday the 13th and no stars and no apparent, you know, story to, you know, to push um, and open it uh, nationally. And it was like, okay, hold on to your seats. I don't, because this could, if this had failed, he might've lost his job. It was one of those, it was one of those like all in moments for him. And as it turned out, he was absolutely right. Um, and he went on to become president of Paramount and do other things. But, but, uh, but the when I if I remember the release of uh, or studying going back studying the release of, of Friday the Thirteenth, it was it was released widely. Um, but the, the the trailer for it, if you just were basically selling the title, and there's some kills, uh, yeah. and that that was essentially it wasn't a story plot it wasn't right it was just like it's called friday the 13th the most terrifying day in the calendar um you know next to right. halloween if that but if not probably scarier than halloween because it's not a it's not a uh, it, yeah it is what i have found is so, it has universal psychic real estate you know people right. just carry around this this thing about friday the 13th and bad luck and and it uh it transcends almost all cultures because every culture they may not call it Friday the Thirteenth, but they have a day of the year, which is um, predicated on don't bad fall luck. under any ladders and that kind of thing. Right, so it's, it's all it's all kind of bad luck stuff. Yeah, I know. And now going back a little bit though, when you were you came up with the characters, you came up. You were were you writing? Did, well, I know you. Didn't yeah, write I mean, uh, Victor Miller I, and and Steve Miner and Tom Savini. We were sort of. Victor and I first had this notion of, you know, like 10 little Indians happening at a summer camp. And, um, <clears throat> and um, Steve was going to be the line producer. And we were trying to figure out how to get a special effects guy. And we, right. had, we and that, and there's this guy in, in Pittsburgh, in Savini. Can we try to find him, track him down and, and stuff? And, and um, we did, and he got in his car with his friend Tasso and, and um, came up to Connecticut. And he was so excited and so psyched to do this. And, and so we're all just working with, yeah, you've got a kid in the woods and he dies. Okay, what happened there? How do you make it scary? And how do you shoot it? And, 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 um, and you know, 
none of it could have been done. But you know, all four of us really combined to to make it make it happen. What did, what did Tom do prior to that? Like there wasn't a lot of yeah, he did uh, stuff uh, going Night on. of the Living Dead. Oh, that's right. the original. The original. Oh, and I think that original, was his, I think that was his only that was his only credit, which is you may recall it's a pretty good credit. And and right. Yeah. Well, now it's a really good credit. At the time, you know, it, what's this thing? You know, <laughs> yeah. What the hell is this? You know, I want to see sound the music, and I am in here. Uh, so but, he was just uh, a young kid who's super excited about makeup and right. i think that's the movie that essentially launched his career after yes, that he was, was a for very sure. very busy man in the 80s <laughs> oh he, he continues to this day you know he studied with a guy named i believe his name oh god i want to say dick clark rick uh, baker rick baker thank you mm -hmm. um and uh and he really knew how to do prosthetics and all that kind of stuff. And he wanted to do it. And he, <laughs> he told me what he's like, I have a dream speech, but his dream was he wanted to chop somebody's head off on camera. Uh, you know, so you could really sell that it had never been done before. And really? that, that, yeah. And so we figured out that, you know, very carefully the staging, the blocking for, for how we could, Chop Betsy Palmer's head off. I mean, you essentially ushered in the the slasher, the slasher as we know it uh, yeah. to a certain extent. Help, help, helped it, helped it along without question. And I think it was after Friday the Thirteenth. That's when there was a couple of uh, copycat, uh, <laughs> just a couple of copycat Phew. films. <laughs> Chopping wall. Chopping <laughs> slaughter slaughterhouse or How slaughter party shit. How do you chopping mall? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Genius! <laughs> I was watching. I watched the trailer the other day. I was like, "What?" Because I remember it in the, the I remember it in the video store. I used to I used to, I used to rent all this stuff, and people yeah. would come in, and Friday the Thirteenth were all up there, all four hundred and fifty versions of that eventually came out. And then you know, obviously, Freddy and all these kind of, but it that that decade is where all of the the characters that we uh, you know horror horror lovers uh, love, like the Freddies, the Jasons, the Michael Myers, and then mm -hmm. then they started to go from there. But those are the original the originals. Yeah that yeah. came out of it, that whole thing. <clears throat> um, now, look, as a director, we always have a, a, a day that we feel like the entire world is coming crashing down around us. Yeah. And that we're not, I mean, that's generally every day. Uh, but there's always that one day in the project that you're like, oh my God, I don't know if we're going to make it here. Like I can't catch my, get my day done or the camera falls into the lake or prosthetic isn't working. Right, 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 uh, right. What was that day where you, did you have any of those days on Friday the 13th? And how did you I, overcome I, I think every filmmaker has has that day. I mean, there may be worse days, but I the the oh my god, it'll never work again day, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which you know you you thought this movie was going to be set, just going to work so well, and you've got it as tight as you can, and then you show it to you show it to an audience. You're sitting in the audience, and they're getting ahead of you, and it's not working for this audience, and Oh, why did I leave that in? I should have cut it out. Oh, what am I going to do? And and then you know that's sort of like day one. And then you recut and and try to 
come up with the movie that that uh, represents what you were doing. But so for you, always, it was imposed. there's always that screening. A screening doesn't necessarily have to be in front of a paying audience. It could can be for a studio. It can be for uh, a focus group. But it's one of you're sitting there with strangers who have nothing invested in the movie, and they're going, oh, "Yeah, what the hell is that? That's stupid." Was yeah. that ending? Was that ending always there? No. No, the ending was um, uh, the ending was something that that um, one of my investors wanted to you know, wanted to try, and it just seems so stupid. <laughs> and I mean, this is a, a reality based ten little Indians thing, and um, I said I get it, but. I don't know how we can insert it into the movie because as it was conceived is she's just there and and the thing the thing that was scripted was everything with her on the lake and the police arriving and everything and then just I don't know where this creature comes up out of the out of the bottom and grabs her. It's, it, it sounds horrible, by the way. It's, it's yes. as you're explaining it. It, it sounds horrible. like a horrible idea. <laughs> and it was and and um, uh, and I said i wouldn't or wouldn't couldn't shoot it until we figured out what would what would follow it what's the epilogue the coda you can't just you can't just end the movie with a punch in the stomach like that it's you know no explanations or anything and once we got the little there's a little epilogue with alice in the hospital bed and and uh, dreaming about the things that happened. Did it happen? Did it not happen? And stuff like that. Once you had that, okay, now we have at least a place where it could go. It might be understood. Maybe it was a dream. Maybe it wasn't. And same time, Savini just grabbed a hold of that. And he just, <laughs> he wanted, he came up with this deformed creature and 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 he just and it had to work underwater and had to do all those different things, and uh, uh, and he, you know, he just he created that uh, the that that creature, that twelve year old boy, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. um, Ari Lehman. I'll tell you a story. My son Noel was supposed to play that role. He was mm -hmm. supposed to be Jason in the lake um, until. His mother found out. Says, "You are not taking my son and putting him in the ice cold water. That's crazy. You get somebody else." And so that—that's how he—that—that's uh, how he lost the part. You know, he could have had oh, it. I'm sure, and I'm sure he was. I'm, I'm sure he's given mom some hell over the years over that. Oh, over the years, yeah. But at the time, it was like, oh, oh good, I don't have to do it. Jesus, that that water is so cold. I mean, he could be signing in conventions right now. Oh yeah. Uh, so right. so so with the that's a one thing that always it's one of those trivia questions is like, who is the killer in the first Friday the Thirteenth? And the wrong answer is Jason, because right. everyone always says Jason is Jason's right. mom. But it, it it's one of those one of those lovely uh, <laughs> questions. Now also, you know, I'm sure you've seen Scream at this oh, point yeah. in your life. And Wes's scream, and a lot of those rules that he put in the movie, or Kevin uh, Kevin Williamson wrote it, put in the movie about don't have sex, you know, don't say I'll be right all back. The, all, all the all the horror tropes, yeah. All the tropes. Many of those started in Friday the Thirteenth. Am I wrong? 
Well, yeah. Um, some of them did. I mean, it's you know, you got ten kids in the woods and you're going to chop them up. Okay. What are they going to do? Yeah, and it's, um, but I, I think one of the things that happened is that people started to impose a morality on top of it, like you know the 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 loose girl and oh, and yeah. the uh, and the and the potheads. Well, they've got to go, you know, <laughs> because they're obviously the bad people. Right. Or who are not behaving well. It's a cautionary tale. So we're going to really be rooting for this one girl, but we're going to kill the others because they're so irresponsible. And that just made makes a bad situation just that much worse. It's just right. it's just a bad idea. And and I think that the the underlying scary part of of uh, Friday the Thirteenth and things that followed it. Um, I think it came from Jaws, uh, that there's a shot in Jaws, I don't know, about halfway through the movie, and they've opened the beaches, and it's sunny, and it's 4th of July or something, mm -hmm. and and there's a shot of, of the shark going down, and he's looking up, and, and he sees nothing but legs, and they're old people, and young people, and women, and men, and, and, the, and he's going to... It just eat somebody, and it really depends how hungry he is. It has nothing to do with, oh, I'm going to eat, you know, I'm going to eat that dope, dope smoking jerk, or I'm going to get that tramp or something. No, it can happen to anybody at any time for reasons which are completely beyond our control. And knowing, that, I mean, I think that's a core belief that we all have, and we need to. We have this cognitive dissonance because. What we do on a daily basis is deny that anything really bad could happen to us. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, there's part of us that knows it could happen at any moment, the rational versus the irrational, you know, and we're hardwired to ignore it. But nevertheless, it's um, uh, it, it's in there. And it's this the dynamic of fairy tales where you look at something that you know is true or could be true. And it's really scary, so you freeze up. But when you see it in the safety of a movie theater, or you know somebody telling you a story about once upon a time, um, you know you get to be exposed to your father dying, or you know being abandoned by your parents, or whatever it is that might happen. Um, and and you see it so many times, and as you see it you get a little bit number and a little bit number to the thing that was really so scary to you in the first place. And, and in a way it's sort of, it's establishing value systems and it's, um, um, it, it's a way of teaching you to deal with, or, or, you know, saying that there are tough things you have to deal with in life and you can do it Then you know, and I think that that's, that's my understanding about how um, how horror films um, have, you know, a lot of them were, at their core, they were fairy tales that the were cathar It's cathartic. It's cathartic. It's catharsis. And um, there's a book by a guy named Bruno Bettelheim, which called The Uses of Enchantment, which really opened my eyes to this. And um, it's, you know, I... I Anyway, that's no, that. but, but you you actually answered a question that I hadn't I was about to ask, which was why do you think these films have 
lasted the test of time. Characters like Jason and Freddy and Michael, that, that we just keep coming back to these, these monsters, even Jaws. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, mm-hmm. And those kind of, what was about them? What are about these films that people keep watching them not only again and again but keep like i mean obviously from friday the 13th there was maybe two three four you know five big horror movies i mean obviously the exorcist and all those kind of movies um which were different but in the slasher genre it just kept growing and growing what is it about that genre of horror that people just kept going back to and in many ways having fun with because originally if i remember freddie Freddy was terrifying, but then Freddy turned into a comedy routine uh, with some yeah. gore eventually. Yeah. And Jason did, did too, and, for that matter. I think what happened, I don't think people keep going back to horror films because of their horror films. They go back to experience, um, you know, why does a kid say, no, no, read me the, read me the story again from the beginning. And and don't change it because oh he doesn't like it when you change it but you know from the beginning um, I think that some strange strange things happen to Jason and to Freddie and Michael Myers I think um, but you saw particularly um, with Jason and Freddie is you went you went to the movie for whatever reasons it's going on a roller coaster it's like oh my shit oh my god yeah. Oh my God. And, you know, and it becomes kind of a fun, crazy event. Um, and then there's another, and then you start saying, uh, okay, let's, we're going to have a softball game Friday the 13th. We're going to have a softball game. We're going to choose up sides. Okay, I got the big guy with the mask. Who do you got? <laughs> <laughs> the big guy with the mask who doesn't die. That guy. Right. He'll be on my side. Yeah, you can have those four football players, no problem. And <laughs> the I I think that I think that there's something in in the transformation of of this call it uh, uh, Jason Freddie Jason slasher yeah uh, kind of um, and that is that it's it's it's. It's kind of revenge of the of the nerds on steroids, you know. So much of the audience feels like you know um, they they were allowed to sit at the cool kids' lunch table. <laughs> oh, and all and, the cool kids are the ones dying. Do you notice that? And the I same, am? by the way, the same, same thing happens in Living Dead, where you can shoot the principal of the school if he's got that look in his eye, you know. And and I there's there's kind of a I think nobody's ever said that one for one, but I think that that's the that's the thing that happens. And so if you're going to go out and experience that now, it's sort of predictable, like a roller coaster ride. There are going to be things that are scary and bloody and gory, but you can't scare me. Not only that, because I got the big guy on my side. Uh, right. But people that you know. You go to a roller coaster ride in Six Flags or someplace. There's gonna be a lot of people get on the roller coaster. There's a whole bunch of people sitting on the bench. They don't want to get on the roller coaster, and they're never going to get on the roller coaster. And and so that 
this experience is not for everyone. You can't make it for everyone. You're crazy if you think you try, you can, because you can't. There are people that that like the roller coasters and people that don't. And liking the roller coaster has to do with those moments where you have no control and you think that you're enormous jeopardy, but at the same time you're strapped in and and there are bars and harnesses and and stuff, but still there's that you know moment and you know uh and then if you're like a fan, you start, you know, putting your arms up in the air. Hey, I'm not afraid of anything. Um, but I don't know. It, no, uh, I, I understand. No, but I understand where you're coming from uh, completely. It, it, you're absolutely right. I've never thought of it that way. But that makes so much sense because in a lot of those movies, I don't remember. It might have happened, but I don't remember them killing the nerds. It's always, you know, the beautiful girl, the, the big jock, uh, those people that yeah. the, the 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 cool kids are the ones that go that go first uh, and i don't remember and i don't remember many nerds getting knocked out because you're like <laughs> well yeah it's the equivalent yeah. of kicking the dog like you don't yeah. do that <laughs> you can't you can't well, kick you know. a dog you can't kick a dog in the movie because that's the villain <laughs> no i do, oh, I do want to ask you i do want to ask you sean after the movie comes out it's a huge huge hit it is one of these you know biggest independent films of its day um i'm assuming you get a few phone calls yeah uh, and how did the town treat you and why didn't you keep going down that road you know as a, as a filmmaker because you didn't do the second or third or fourth or any other jason movie why didn't you go down that road where others have uh, i'm just curious well i mean if it were to happen again tomorrow you know i I would definitely, uh, you know, um, order my business life differently. But um, I didn't, you know, Friday the 13th was you took a bunch of kids in the wood and you chopped them up. I didn't want to do that every year and, you know, find, you know, better machetes. And, and it wasn't what I wanted to do. I, um, Friday the 13th was... I was naive enough, like I said, I, my education took a long time to think that, you know, they said, oh, Sean, you made a really, really terrific hit movie and we'd love to meet with you. And and then it would always come around to, so what do you want to do next? Now, me, I thought. <laughs> Here it comes. Uh, yeah, I thought that the guy sitting behind the desk and it's got a whole filing cabinet full of great scripts. He just hasn't found the right director. And um, and he said, what do you want to do next? And my answer was kind of, I don't know. What do you got? You know, <laughs> The only thing that the guy sitting behind the desk wants to hear is, I'd like to do Friday the 13th every year until I die. You know, and oh, and I, I could have you know, signed up at that point. I had no idea um, wow. that that was, you know, I thought, I think I thought of Friday the 13th as a sample reel kind of, see, I can direct. No, you got anything? Else? Now let me go make real movies in your or eyes. Or something like that. Yeah. And, and I'm going to have a script supervisor this time, damn it. <laughs> I hear they're important. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating because I've had a lot of people on my show over the years who had these kind of like lottery ticket moments. I mean, you were one of the, you, you and, and John uh, and Wes, you had these kind of lottery ticket moments where you had extremely massive hits. 
mm-hmm. and how you, you know, I've seen a lot of them just go, go a different direction, but like, I don't want to do that for the rest of my life. And every one of them said, I would have known now <laughs> if I would have known then what I know now. Yeah. And- I would have done at least three or four more. <laughs> just, just, but- and then retire. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but you had it, but you had a hell of, I mean, you had a hell of a run in the eighties oh, as well. Yeah. I had, I mean, I, I got a lot, I got to make a lot of movies and, yeah. and, uh, um, and, and, you know, the challenge of making any movie is, you know, it's an, it's like climbing a mountain. You just oh, you get God. together with a bunch of people and you try to do this thing. that's really hard, separate from the content. It's just making a movie is just really hard. It's really hard work and you. And you meet and and bond with a, a bunch of people. And making movies is making movies is the fun part of whatever whatever we do. Um, the rest of the time is spent trying to get the movies made and in that or get sold or sold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would. Um, I know that I know that a, a number of your viewers are probably. Uh, film students or people relatively new to relatively new to the business, and you talked about going to film school and so on. What nobody ever tells a film student is you go and you learn about the cameras and you learn it, but now you learn about certain kinds of media and and you learn how to make and do all this great stuff. But there are no jobs for you, none, none. Nobody's going to hire you to do that. If you really want to do that, what you have to do is, along with everything else you've been doing, is learn how to raise money. And and if, and it's very difficult. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And until you get a handle on that, you're going around, um, you know, with a script in your under your arm, trying to get somebody to give you enough money or to to make it for you, and it doesn't happen. It only happens if you find a way. You know, and yet, yeah, being a Type A personality is critical. I think um, you've got to go out and find find a way to uh, to get enough money to make it. And if it's five thousand dollars, do you take your iPod and you go out, or your iPad and you go out and 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 shoot it and do the best you can come back and make another one next week and the week after that and week after that because that's that's the only way you're going to learn learn how to do it and and nobody's going to give you the money to do it you have to find and by the way everybody gets money different ways different places different times oh but that's that's one of the things that they don't teach in film school and it's i you know it's it's a critical lesson and mm-hmm. you know you probably more than i but um see a lot of people that are talented and they've got great footage and they can't get hired they can't you know they can't break in and but there isn't a way to break in there isn't an apprenticeship you know Not for for directors is tough for other yeah, parts, yeah, yeah. camera I mean, department, yeah. art department. Th- yes. Yeah, but those, yeah, uh, that's that's a completely other thing. Yeah, and you know, if you have the if you have the right bloodlines or the right genes, you get you, that. Can a, you can be a you know a, do- a dolly grip too. But I'm talking about the the 
the the people that <clears throat> you go to film school, you don't go to film school to be a grip. You go to be filmmaker, a storyteller, and stuff like that. And, and that's what you have to keep doing. But you're going to be on your own for a long time trying to do that. And if you know that going in, it's it's better than if you don't. It's really, and I appreciate that because that's a very wise piece of information there because I've come to understand, I heard this the other day and I thought this was fantastic and so, it so perfectly defines our industry, which is it is possible for anyone to direct a movie, mm -hmm. but it's not probable. <laughs> okay. Because he's like, there's so much work that goes because at, at the beginning everyone can make a movie like oh it's possible yeah and now more than ever more than in your day your day would be like, uh -huh. it was much harder to get a movie off the ground now you could go make a movie for three or five grand and and you can but the probability of that happening is very small because the amount of work things have to line up things have to fall into place you have to be perse the perseverance years, like you said, to get things done. And, you know, I've been in the business now closing in on 30 years. And that is really the definition of our business because is it, it's possible? Yes. That's what Hollywood sells. Anyone could be a star. Anyone could be a director. Anyone could write a million dollar script. Don't forget. And nobody knows anything. And nobody knows anything, <laughs> but you, you can win. But the, the probability of you selling a script for a million dollars, how many scripts get sold for a million dollars? Right. A handful. How many filmmakers make a, a studio movie? Now, none. <laughs> very few young filmmakers make them. It's very small. So I just thought that was such an interesting, and, and it's a raw, it's a tough pill to swallow, but it is the truth of our business. Would you agree? Absolutely. It's, it's, um, yeah, not anyone can, but most people, you know, um, could could get it together to get a movie made somehow. Mm -hmm. um, not likely, like you said, this is not probable, but it's a lot of work and it has nothing to do with what you learned when you studied making movies. Mm -hmm. um, it's 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 an integral part of making movies that's just ignored. Um, hmm. Oh, well, okay. Um, I, I was thinking, thinking about a um, few things that, that, you know, when I, when I talk to uh, um, people about the movies, um, I, I stay away from the technical, technical issues because, well, I don't know them as well as all the people that do them every day. But it seems to me that there are a few really, um, important things. One is I'm going to refer to something called, you ready? <laughs> the poster. Or you know, back in the day, we called it the one sheet. But today it might be the billboard on Sunset Boulevard. Or the thumbnail in Netflix. Or the, or the thumbnail. So what is the thumbnail for your movie? And because what is contained in there, if it's done right, is the promise of what the movie is, you know, and um, you. So from day one, you know what you've promised the audience, and then you have to deliver on that. But you have to keep coming back to it. You don't think about it later. If you think about this, 
I read the script and the pages did they just you know took all my emotional energy and I just couldn't couldn't stop reading it. Okay, what's the poster? <laughs> how you know how are you gonna uh, how are you gonna uh, get people in it? Because what you what you're doing for all intents and purposes is you're you're making this thing and then you're stopping strangers on the street saying, wait 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 come with me please I'm, I want to show you something and it, it's a movie and you're really gonna I promise you're really gonna like it please come with me and you try to get them and you pull them in and you put them in the seat and you say and that'll be fifteen bucks <laughs> right? and then the guy has to sit there for the next two hours of his life and leave happy. And that's what we do. And if if he doesn't leave happy, you don't get a chance to do it again, or not very soon. And right. so, I I think that that's um, that knowing what the poster is and embracing the fact that you have an audience um, that is vital to to what we do for a living. Um, the other thing that I think gets lost and um and that's who do you make a movie for who's your audience and i think the way to approach it is you're creating a gift for somebody and it's not for you to find yourself and to work out your anxieties and work out that's all an art stuff. film that's an art yeah, film and that's and a right, fresh new way but even <laughs> an art film you you know um you you're making it for somebody else and you want it to be good and you want to be able to give give it to this other person uh, or people and they're going to be glad that they got it and they'll they'll react to the fact that you really did the best you could to create this gift for them and that those are that's what you're doing if you're doing it right and i and I'm, those aren't words you hear very often but I think that I think they're really critical. Those are fantastic. I mean, those those words. I mean, I've been yelling both of those things from the top of the mountain for quite some right. time now, uh, Sean. It is something that's so important. And filmmakers, they don't they don't think about it. They don't think about the poster. They don't think about the marketing. They don't think how they're going to sell it. And they definitely don't think about the audience. They just think about, I want to make this movie. I want right. to put this out there. But if you don't think of who this is for, it's just it's an expensive art, man. It's just oh. not a. This is not paint on canvas. This is not writing a book. No. You know, this is this is an expensive art that takes a lot of time, a lot of collaboration, a lot of things to fall into place for it to be done, period, let alone well. Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of movies made. And then there's this many that are really good and, and, and stand the test of time for whatever the reason is. Um, and it is, I, I appreciate you saying that and it coming out of your mouth uh, hopefully, people listening will listen. Well, they hear it once anyway. Yeah, maybe. But they, but but it's interesting. But it's something that needs to be, especially for younger filmmakers or first-time filmmakers. They don't understand that. I wrote a whole book about that. About like understand your niche audience, understand your audience, and build a product for that audience. Build that thing to serve them, and 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 really connect with them. And it's, it, it is something that is not talked about very often. So I do appreciate you saying that. Mm. Now, there is one question I, I've always wanted to ask. <laughs> I have to ask this. I need you to no get No offense. No offense, Sean. No offense. No, 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 right. not, no, no, no. It's not that kind of answer. That's not that question. But I've always wanted to ask this question uh, because you do go to cons. And you go and you sign at cons. And 
And I've been to many, I've signed at some, uh, some cons. I've, I've experienced it myself. Um, and I've, I've gone to horror conventions earlier when I had a, one of my first films and I met a lot of your contemporaries and all that stuff. Mm. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. When you first got called, mm-hmm. they say, hey, Sean, we not, why don't we bring you over to a comic book convention or a horror convention to sign? What did you think? You're like, what do no, you think? I call- saw exactly. <laughs> I'll tell you exactly what I thought. Are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> you want me? Yeah, well, I wasn't. It's like, that's, you know, if. If you hit 62 home runs in a baseball season, okay, go sign to baseball. Right. Uh, but I, I, but I'm, just, I'm just a guy. And, uh, you know, to, to charge somebody for signing something seems crazy. And so I didn't do it. And, uh, and I, st- I still do not many. Um, but I really enjoy it because I get, to, um, I get to better understand people that are fans of of the genre and um you get it's it's really it's really kind of good for your um it's good to be reminded of the people that are out there and and that they're often really nice people oh they're 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 comic book and horror they're such sweet people most of them i've ever met and um wes uh, referred to them as, as wearing urban camouflage. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they don't, they, you know, they don't want to stick out and they want to be with their, be with people that share their values and their sense of fun and entertainment. But there's kind of a uniform so that if you are, one of them, you oh, he's our he's our kind of people, and you you learn that. And um, I uh, I like I, I I like interacting with the fans, and um, uh, it's just it means so much more to them than it does to me. <laughs> right? No, I understand. I understand and, that completely. And so I, you know, I the notion of Selling your signature just strikes me as still strikes I, me as goofy. I, it, it is a little goofy, and and I remember I was at a I was at a I think the San Diego Comic Con, and I went to talk to an actor, and I won't say the name because I'm still a fan, but uh, but I, I he was just sitting at a booth by himself. It wasn't even an autograph scenario, and I had a, a statue of one of the characters he played. This is years ago, and I go, hey, you know, can you sign this? And he's like, um, if you want it dedicated, it's 275 bucks. If you want it non-dedicated, it's 450 bucks. And I'm like, I, I, I'm just a fan, man. I just, I just, I'm not selling this. I'm just a fan. He's like, yeah, that's the price. I'm like, wow. Okay. So it, there's a dark side to this as well <laughs> sometimes. But it wasn't even... He was just sitting in the corner by himself, like not even in an autograph scenario. But it was interesting. It's just an interesting. There's been there's been documentaries on cons and and that whole subculture and and stuff. But I always wanted to ask someone like yourself, what did you think when they first asked you to sign something and get paid for it? Yeah, it just seemed 
Looney. Yeah. No, my name is not Mickey Mantle or Tom Cruise. Uh, right, right. You know, it's like, do you remember? I thought, remember those, there's a TV show where he's Hollywood Squares. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, the, you the, get the, 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 the tic tac toe, but, right? And there are individual personalities in each of the boxes, right? And most of them were famous for being famous. <laughs> Not because they did anything. You know, what was O.J. Simpson's houseboy, Cato Kalin? He became famous for living in the guest house. <laughs> you want to you wanna hear a, 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 a funny side note? When I moved to L.A., my second home was a townhome in Toluca Lake. And uh, I lived across the way from Cato Kalin. <laughs> He's oh, a very sweet man, very sweet guy. Yeah, and you went straight to the top. I mean, I was there, baby. I arrived. Yeah, right in the middle of it. <laughs> now, I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all my, my guests, Sean. What all advice right. would you give a filmmaker trying to break into the business today? Um, <laughs> the smart answer is don't quit your day job. <laughs> but um, I, think that, I think that what this has become is something that you love to do. And uh, this has to do with acting or directing or any number of different things. And it's quite possible, as you say, to, to do this with the very limited resources that we have at our, at our fingertips um, and do it and do it and do it and enjoy it. But and do that in the same way that you might enjoy, I don't know, playing softball with the guys over the weekend. You know, it's something that you can love and enjoy and, and be fine. Um, how you can do this thing that would then allow you to support yourself doing it um, is just, it's, it's possible, but it's not probable, you know. Now, there are going to be people who say, yeah, yeah, whatever. All right. What, That's what not else? Me. That's not me. That's not me. All right. Uh, what, what else you got? And I say, well. Um, story, story, story. And, you know, if you can either write or find somebody that really knows how to write well and, and then tell stories and don't think that what you're going to do is get it the first time out or the second or the third. So what you have to do is you have to keep making mistakes and that's how you learn anything is you go out. You try something, seems like a good idea at the time, you fall down, it doesn't work, you get up and do it again. And the uh, the amount of time it takes, um, they throw around 10,000 hours, and that's not very long. But to convert the 10,000 hours that I think it takes to even have your ante in the game as, a say, a writer, um, you can't go to you know, Robert McKee over the seminar weekend and, and then come home and write the great screenplay. You just can't. Um, you get good guidance, but you, you just can't do that. Um, but yet you have to, if, if 10,000 hours is, let's just say you don't know anything about carpentry. You, you know, you've looked at cabinets your whole life. You know exactly what cabinets look like, but you don't know how to make them. So you apprentice yourself to a master carpenter. And he teaches you, and, and, and you work really hard uh, five days a week um, and Christmas off. And after four to five years, depending, you will have put in 
your 10,000 hours. And at that point, um, maybe you can make one of those finely um, uh, fitted cabinets and, and know how to stain it. Um, <clears throat> because that's all you've been doing for the last five years. And it's only five years. I mean, if you did that when you were 17 or 18 years old, you come out at the age of 23 as a fine cabinet maker. And then you then you keep building on that. But there's a great deal of, I think there's a great deal of time and effort that has to be put into learning the craft. The art comes at the art comes at the end. Uh, and you know, 90% of what we do is 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 a craft. And it's like any other craft. It has to be studied and learned and you have to do the heavy list, lifting, and you can't, you know, you can't start as a star. Um, but that's what the film schools teach you. You're a star, kid. Right. It, it, yeah, and that's uh, that's the important. Did you ever see the documentary um, Jiro Dreams of Sushi? <laughs> no. It was a it was an award winning documentary about this master sushi maker in in Japan. Like he's a he's the only sushi maker to ever win a Michelin star, ever, and when you apprentice with him, it's a 10-year commitment. The first four years, you don't touch fish. <laughs> it's all rice. All you do is cook rice for four years. So you learn how to cook rice properly. And then you begin to start touching fish after four mm -hmm. years. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> Oh, God. It's such a brilliant, but it's such a great thing. It's like, you know, if you want to be a cinematographer, you just want to get on set and start moving lights around and start moving the camera. I'm like, no, you've got to learn so much technical knowledge. And, and, and you only learn it by doing it. Absolutely. You can't read about it. You can't watch about it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I think that, yeah, it's, it, and if you want to make a career out of it, what you must do is sell a movie for more than it costs you to make. Every time. Roger and, Corman and, style. And that way, that way you get to make another movie. And, and that seems overly simplified, but that's got to be at the core of what you're doing if you're trying to make a career out of it. But you don't have to. You can you can get yourself a camera and a microphone and go shoot whatever you want and, and play with it and come up with all kinds of things, show it to your friends, go to film festivals, all that stuff. Um, and you can, you, you know, certain people will come out with, I don't know if it's going to be great art, but it could be really good stuff. Right. But they're not trying to make a living doing that. You've got to have your day job or marry very well. <laughs> that's amazing great advice i've had that that's some advice i've had and they're like i, I talked to this one director and he said I go, what's the advice you give him like goes marry well that's what i <laughs> yeah. that's what i did and my wife helps me pay for all my movies so <laughs> now what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn whether in the film business or in life hmm no, no. Hmm. I, 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 I don't know. I think it's um, for me. It's not learning, but one of those things you you try to do. You try to do the right thing. You don't always do the right thing, 
And you, nobody goes through life without making mistakes and, and having regrets, but you stay on the road and you do the next right thing. Whatever you did yesterday is yesterday. Sounds and good. and uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's a lesson to be learned every day, but that's, you know, that's what you try to do. And last question, three of your favorite films of all time. Oh, so they go, go all over the place, but um, I would say Love Actually. So good. The Lion King. And um, in, in genres, I just, I remember, I remember seeing The Alien. The Ridley oh. Scott original, and that was just so good at what he did. He was trying, you know, and he just the all of all of those were for me home runs. Um, I, I can't I can't disagree with any of those choices, sir. Right. Uh, <laughs> they're all excellent choices, John. <laughs> I I appreciate your time, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been such a a pleasure and honor talking to you about. Well, uh, very your nice to say that. I hope. Um, uh, I hope you got something. <laughs> we got something. I think we got a couple of gold Maybe nuggets you can, in here. You can probably trim this down to a nice, tight seven or eight minutes. And, <laughs> I appreciate it's really you. Gonna, it's really going to, you know, and some music, a few sound effects. And, and, obviously, and, and a good kill. And then we're good. Then, we, then I could sell it. <laughs> then you can sell it. <laughs> John, I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you for everything. Okay, well, thank you very much. And, and um, we'll talk again, I'm sure. I want to thank Sean so much for coming on the show and dropping his knowledge bombs and sharing his journey with the tribe today. Thank you so much, Sean. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 285. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 